Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Denver United. Thanks for coming to worship God with us. Welcome to all of you who are worshiping at home or wherever you are. It's amazing going through a pandemic era in 2021 that we can be one church following one Jesus in all kinds of locations and together as one And uh, we're so glad you guys are worshiping with us. For those of you who are coming back to in-person for the first time, it's been a little bit of homecoming week over the last several, last couple of months. And it's so good to continue seeing you and knowing that we are still one family in Christ. You know, speaking of the redemptive um, upside of the last year and all of its challenges, well-documented, We've been able to expand our congregation. Yes, like my parents who live in suburban Atlanta and have a church of which they're a part and faithfully committed, but being home in their house for the bulk of the last year have asked if they could have dual citizenship, which of course um, I granted, and have been worshiping with us from home. So, hi mom. (laughs) So if you're ever wondering whether... um, talking about Jesus and his eternal word with people whom you love and um, some of whom have been teaching the very passages you're about to teach since you were, you know, in grade school is humbling and keeps you feeling accountable. Yes, and that accountability feeling is child's play compared to your mother being on the other side of that camera. (laughs) Think about that. Thinking about my mom being a part of our congregation and reflecting on the fruits of the Spirit as I have been over the last several weeks got me to thinking about her father, my granddaddy Sutherland, one of the most interesting and larger-than-life people I've ever known. Granddaddy Sutherland is where I got my uh, Scotch-Irish complexion and fiery disposition and probably entrepreneurial spirit. He went off to World War II as a quartermaster and learned about supply and provisioning, came home and in their small town of Cochrane, Georgia, opened Sutherland's Superfoods which he proceeded to be the proprietor of for the rest of his working life. He was grandmother Sutherland's husband, my mom and her sister and brother's dad. He was the employer of a handful of people. He was a pillar in the community, a member of First Baptist Church, and a neighbor to those that lived on their left and right for the rest of his life in that small town with those few people. And he did what he could to help those who are destitute. He told people, pay when you're able for their groceries. He was a pioneer, I believe, in what they understood and knew of racial justice in that difficult place and time, the 1950s, and 60s in the deep rural south. Not to airbrush him, he was far from without fault, highly irreverent, the life of the party. But when I close my eyes and picture faithfulness, he's the one I think of, just kept doing it year after year for the rest of his life. And I realized that that fruit, Faithfulness is like a dying art. 
in our culture, in our fast, frenzied, and utility-driven culture. Faithfulness is like swordplay. It's just passed out of human expertise and experience. And this morning, as we turn to that fruit, we're going to look at a passage that will offer us some observations on a dying art. Galatians chapter 5 is where we find the headwaters for this series, exotic fruits, looking at the B-side fruits, if you will, the ones that are less talked about, that you kind of lump together in the final fruits of the Spirit message very often. The passage reads in verse 22, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. And of course, we started by way of introduction in this series looking at the context of the passage because the temptation in talking about the fruits of the Spirit is to go legalistic righteousness and religious performance and say, just be this way and this way. Do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and you'll be good, right? But that's the very method of religion that led to death. It didn't work up until Jesus' time and why he came to die. It's the heart of the gospel was not that. But when you look at this passage, it's not saying do this, this, and this. It's saying, let the Holy Spirit lead your lives. We've been born again made new in Christ, and as the fledgling new creations that we are, we have a choice. The old sinful nature would take us this way, and the fruits of that nature are well-worn paths. They're obvious, but the, the, the Spirit of God in us, He'll take us another way. So facilitate, work with, allow, make room for the Holy Spirit because He produces this kind of fruit in your lives. Now, last week we talked about the fruit of goodness, which I think is the most subtle and ambiguous of the fruits. So we spent time trying to pinpoint exactly what it means because aren't they all kind of goodness? This week's fruit, faithfulness, is the opposite. Very few people in life, I think, have ever been unfaithful to anyone for lack of information, right? Because they didn't know what the word meant. It's precise, clear, and singular. It's all in the playing out. We're going to look at a case study, as I mentioned, in John chapter 6, that will show us faithfulness from the backside, how it plays out in our lives by what it is not, and then some of the most glorious faithfulness that we see from humans in Scripture. John 6 is the day after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and that gets talked about a lot. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. This is only featured in John's account. And it's what happens the next day. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the day before the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understand the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has 
sent. Aha, so their motive is revealed. These are some who were with them, many who were not, but they heard. They heard about these miracles. They heard about this extraordinary miracle that happened on the other side of the lake yesterday that he fed all these people. He's like, you're coming because you want food. They're like, yes, kind of, but also, okay, truth talk. We want to do miracles like that. Can we do it too? And you see in their ambition a snapshot of what faithfulness perhaps is not. Faithfulness is the inverse of selfish ambition. Faithfulness grows as we learn to do what Jesus taught us to do, to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Philippians chapter 2 teaches do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And I can't think of many scriptural teachings that are more antithetical to American culture than counting others as more significant than myself. But that sort of humility is exactly where faithfulness starts. It's not the humility uh, of self-deprecation. It's not thinking less of ourselves, but perhaps thinking of ourselves a little less. The sinful nature wants us to think of ourselves more, see? That path, as I said, well-worn. It wants us to see our own lives, dreams, setbacks, challenges, opportunities as the center of the universe and relationships then as a means to that end. It teaches us to say the path of the sinful nature does. I am the most significant thing. So the most important endeavor in life as it follows would be for me to gain more significance. But this way of thinking, this path of the old sinful nature, it leads to using people. Now we don't usually call it that, but that's the way it ends up looking in practical outworking. Treating people based on their utility and disposing of them and the relationship with them when their utility toward our goals has expired. In Hamlet, Shakespeare gives us so many glimpses of, of ourself in the mirror, the human condition, and he puts it in poignant and memorable terms. Remember um, Polonius, the dad, sending his son Laertes out into the world. He gives him this speech chock full of fatherly advice. The most memorable line is this, those friends thou hast, grapple them unto thy soul with hoops of steel. See, that's what faithfulness looks like recognizing our selfish ambition and its tendency to treat people as disposable, a means to the end of our increased significance. And the word of God teaches what Shakespeare shows us is the redemptive version of us. The Holy Spirit bears this sort of fruit in your lives to treat the relationship not as a means to that end or as a means to any end, but as an end unto itself. How collectively we experience God. The passage continues in verse 35, where Jesus replied to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty again, or sorry, will never be hungry again. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, in verse 41, if you skip down a couple, the people 
replied by murmuring in disagreement because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus? Like bread of life, shred of life. It's like the carpenter's son. He was our neighbor. He asked me to the eighth grade dance. I bought bowls from him. We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? You see in the inverse again, faithfulness. Faithfulness is the opposite. It flows countercurrent from offense. So they start taking offense to him and backing away. Faithfulness allows for the possibility of others being broken, unaware, or just plain wrong. Faithfulness is making allowance for one another's faults, as Ephesians 4 teaches, without the threat of breakup. Think about that. We hold over people's heads so often, and don't you find it grieves you when you have held over your head the threat of breakup in the relationship if you don't perform up to their standard? How easily we can get offended and then throw out the relationship baby with the bathwater. F. Scott Fitzgerald in his most significant work, The Great Gatsby, at least most people believe, um, maybe you remember reading this in school, he writes in the first-person voice of Nick, the protagonist, and he's observing Gatsby, but he says by way of setting up the story, when I came back from the East, do you remember this? Some of you English teachers are, are going to go out in the spirit. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and at a sort of moral attention forever. And I love the honesty that Nick reflects back on that, and Fitzgerald shows us ourselves. I think when we go through hard times, metamorphosis times, breakthrough times, crushing times, like we've been through many of us in the last year, we sort of um, were heightened to the goodness and the rightness, and we expect, whether it's reasonable to expect so, and whether we acknowledge the expectation in our hearts or not, we sort of expect the rest of the world to be standing at moral attention, waiting to receive and engage that which has been newly impressed upon us. Especially in tense times, I think we tend to expect others to be attentive to what we're attentive to, and we get offended when they're not. Have you seen that happen this year? It's been impossible, hasn't it? To be sensitive enough, to be informed enough, to be patriotic enough, to be woke enough, to be enough for anyone else. We're all sort of waiting for the other shoe to fall, the shoe of offense. Proverbs 17, I love this in the message, overlook an offense and bond a friendship. See, that's what faithfulness does, bond it. How many of you have been grateful for friendships that overlooked an offense and were bonded tight during this year? Man, I've got a couple and I'm holding on to them with hoops of steel. It says, fasten on to a slight though, goodbye friend. Philippians chapter 2 says, by contrast, do all things without grumbling or disputing and hold fast to the word of life. So isn't the question really what we hold fast to? What are we fastening on to? 
Because when we fasten onto offense, we see everything increasingly through the lens of offense, that offense, other offenses. Once we start noticing how people aren't enough or aren't doing it right for us, nobody ever does. And we not for them. And so relationships break like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think we live or we're taught to live and modeled for us in this generation, fast-paced 21st century America with a sort of jury's still out mentality. You know, like the jury's still out on this friendship. if, If I could not be offended two weeks, a month, six months in a row, maybe, but the jury never comes in. And I think faithfulness lets the jury back in, if you know what I mean. We're unlikely ever to be there for one another, to do it right enough, to earn that friendship seal if we don't earn it now. Over time, really our flaws, our brokenness are what's going to become more clear, not our perfection. You know, usually we appear glossiest at the beginning of the friendship when we're all kind of putting our best foot forward and we we got our projected self out. And it's after a little while in the friendship that we start showing our cracks and our wrinkles. And so over time, that's the way friendship goes. So what do you fasten on to? Are you easily offended? Are you often let down? What are you expecting from people? And what are they expecting from you? I think that's what this passage asks. It kind of points us down the road of what faithfulness looks like. Verse 52, skip down in the story for the sake of time, and I hope you'll go back and bookmark it and read the whole chapter. It's very long, but fascinating. The people began arguing with each other about what Jesus meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can't have eternal life. Many of his disciples were like, this is hard to understand. This is very hard. Who can accept this? And it's not like Jesus let him off the hook either. He didn't be like, wait, wait, guys, hold on. Before you go, it was a metaphor. He just sort of threw it out there. Because faithfulness forfeits the need to understand fully. Think about it. Faithfulness gives up the right to understand fully. Like that jury being forever out until I'm really convinced that you're right and good the way as I am and want you to be and that you make sense to me, that your positions align with mine. So it leaves the jury forever out. But faithfulness gives the benefit of the doubt keeps the big picture in sight. Think about it. A while you could read that and be like, well, dang, Jesus, if you didn't want to go away, go away. maybe like ixnay on the cannibalism. But if you walked with Jesus any length of time at all, you sort of start to catch on. It's not like his sayings are that tricky. Wait, now, he said if we wanted to be without sin, we should cut our hands off. Yet nobody's not got a hand. He's not mutilating people. He said if you want to not... Look at stuff that causes you to sin, gouge your eye out, but none of them's wearing a patch. Perhaps it was a metaphor. 
Or like when he said Peter, no, 70 times, seven times. I don't see him keeping count of how many times Peter, Peter forgave people. Probably it was hyperbole, not ultra hard to figure out. Up until now, there's been no mention of consuming of humanity. So maybe in the context of the bigger picture and how the fact that everything this guy did was love. Everywhere he went, he didn't eat people, cook them or otherwise. He healed them. He brought the kingdom of God to them. But if you zoom out for like one notch on the lens, you can see that. Ephesians 5 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is so huge. This is the beginning, the topic sentence of a two-chapter discourse in the book of Ephesians on relationships. And the thesis sentence is, submit to one another. That's what makes relationships work. That's how faithfulness happens. But you do it not out of reverence for one another or the jury's forever out. And sooner or later, one another's gonna give you just cause to walk away. We submit to one another, don't we, out of reverence for who? For Christ, who's constantly worthy. See, it's Jesus who saved me. Not you. Not, neither I you, right? And it's Jesus who's remaking me and you. So if we're in relationship and Christ is remaking both of us slowly but surely, it's his image that each of us is growing into. So I can submit to you, even if I think you're dead wrong or I have, I'm mind twisted by what you're saying. I have no grid for where you stand and no comprehension for where you're coming from. And it seems like lunacy to me. Has anyone experienced that this year with people that you love? Like your in-laws or your neighbors or your small group members who all of a sudden you're seeing things differently and you think that you don't get them and they think they don't get you and it's gridlock. And so we just start to walk away. Scripture teaches to submit to one another even if I don't get where you're coming from or I don't like what you're saying out of reverence for Christ because he's remaking you just like he's remaking me and those streams over time, they flow together. It's the same Jesus in whose form I'm being fashioned. What if we responded to what we don't understand with curiosity instead of rejection. Like how different would the next year go from the last if we, for our part, responded to what we didn't understand in people that we have relationship with, with curiosity rather than rejection. Inner conversation you're crazy, man. I don't know what cliff you walked off. Outward conversation out of reverence for Christ, not denying that I think differently. Help me understand where you're coming from. Now, I can have a boundary. If you start trying to persuade me or bully me, I can be like, look, I wasn't asking you to persuade me. I just want to understand. I care about you. Help me understand. Like, what does that cost me? But it gains me a relationship. Down at verse 66, the story wraps up here. It says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Now, this isn't the 12 that became the apostles, but neither is this the outsiders who just got a meal for free. This is followers of Jesus. 
at the drinking of the blood and the eating of the flesh, they're like, I'm out. <laughs> it's like, it's too much. Jesus turned to the 12 and said, are you also going to leave? And note how he engaged them with a question. Jesus was a man. People walking away from him as the end drew near and his hour of crisis approached, it was just as hurtful and unsettling to him as it would be to you or me. As for many of us, it has been. But instead of twisting the screws or holding on tight or trying to manipulate him and being like, you guys going to leave too? Don't leave and trying to convince him or whatever. Just ask him, what about you? I love that Jesus was so secure. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. See, he, they, we believe and know. Like we don't get it all, but we believe. We've seen enough that where else are we going to go? Any going away now would be throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? I love that faithfulness, you see it in his disciples, such a beautiful picture of it, has its roots at the end of the day in faith. We believe, and therefore, we know you're the Son of God. I don't get everything else. I frankly don't get the flesh and blood thing. It was kind of creepy, and I get why it drove these people away. I don't think we should be chasing people away. I might have different strategy than you, but at the end of the day, I believe. And the bottom line is faithfulness is just that. It's staying steady in the face of offense, in the face of unclarity, in the face of our own personal ambition. Faithfulness is staying steady when things get hard. And man, is steadiness at a premium right now. Man, I admire you all so much. Like I told you before there was a pandemic or anyone knew we were gonna be wearing masks around and fighting about vaccines and all that stuff. I told you that you are some of the most honorable, strong, good people I've ever known watching this year, watching you all stay faithful, watching you all come to church on a video screen because you're trying to protect your health or the health of someone you love or care for, watching you stay steady, this has been glorious. It's been so beautiful. Steadiness is in short supply. The world needs it. Our city needs it like it never has. Faithfulness means being a person that others can rely on. I told my wife and my kids, I'm far from perfect. I am, I'm more aware of my inadequacies, shortcomings, failures, and brokenness with every year I live. But here's one thing you can know. I'll always be your husband, and I'll always be your dad for the rest of my life. I don't care what you do. I might be sad about it. It might be thankless. But I'm going to be steady in your life. You're going to have to figure out faithfulness and what that means. But you're going to do it against the backdrop of one person, gosh darn it, standing firm. 
Maybe I'm the fool for it. No, I'm not saying I am with my family, of course, but, you know, for being resolute about those things. But I'm here. I've got, I've just decided. God can move me if he wants to, but I've got no next rung on my ladder of career ambition. This isn't setting me up planting this church and growing it where churches don't grow to get hired by a bigger church in a better place. I've been approached and simply said, I'm not interested, but I'm honored. Thank you. I have no next step. I plan to live a block off of Washington Park in a house that I could now not possibly afford for the rest of my life. I hope the Denver real estate market keeps doing that. I plan to keep being your pastor until the day-to-day operation is a younger man's game and then I'll be like the grandpa who, you know, grabs the kids when they're outside the service by the ear and pulls them back in and preaches like the passionate cranky sermon once a quarter or something. And then I'll die and get buried here in this city. That's me. I'm not saying that's you. I am saying that steadiness is at a premium. First Corinthians says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Oh, Jesus, to be steadfast, to be known as one who is immovable. I'm just going to stay put. God, I want to be that guy. So I think as life is returning to such a fast and frenzied pace, this passage asks us week after week, Will we slow and recognize and allow Jesus to work this fruit in our life? It's the same question every week. The sinful nature leads us down a dark but temporarily fulfilling path. But the Holy Spirit leads us another way, a path less traveled, forming Jesus in us such that faithfulness happens. We don't have to go home and try to apply it There's no five steps to being more faithful. It's simply allowing the Holy Spirit to direct our lives, form Jesus in us, and then choosing in moments to keep in step with him. Now, I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, be steady, and I hear another voice, my sinful nature saying, diverge from the path. I make the choice which one to listen to. We said last week we know love because God first loved us and scripture makes that clear. I think we know faithfulness the same way because God has been faithful to us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The world's grown pretty unsteady in the last year. Financial professionals tell us of the loss of equity, of worth, as the economy was shaken and whole business sectors summarily closed. Others have taken off like gangbusters. It's been the Wild West. I think there's also been a loss of relational capital, a loss of relational equity. 
if we look at the total cumulative loss of net worth in people's portfolios so attentively, can we look at the total cumulative loss of relationship in the portfolios of our lives? Oh, for faithful people in a city like this. Man, does Denver need you. We'll close here. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we're unfaithful, God remains faithful because he can't deny who he is. I think some of us, if we're honest, we know God's faithfulness. We learn it from him. But if we looked at our lives, we'd say, you know what? I've, I've grown pretty unfaithful. Like we talked about earlier, I've been seeking first me or some righteous and real and very viable concern. What did it feel like to seek first the kingdom of God? Jesus Christ died on a cross so that you and I can come to him and come to him and come to him again. We can come back to him. We don't have to dig ourselves out of a hole. We can say, great is your faithfulness. Make me faithful anew. Like Peter, we can say, I believe and I know. So here I am. Would you stand with me? If that's you, we're going to pray. I invite you just to pray with me. Just pray this along in your heart. It's not your words. It's just your faith. Just pray this in faith with me. Father in heaven, man, you're so faithful. And at times I'm so faithless, I ask you to forgive me for being bouncy and ambitious and high maintenance, hard to please. Lord, help me to be humble steady. God, I know my ability to be faithful with people in my life flows from your faithfulness and my willingness to receive it. So I receive it anew. Would you make me faithful? Would you form me anew in Jesus? Would you take me back? Some of us just need to ask him, would you bring me back home? I love your way. I know it in, when I see it in others. I want others to know it when they see it in me. And I thank you that as I watch for you, wait for you, allow you, Jesus, to be formed in me, Holy Spirit, listening for the still small voice by which you lead me, that you make me faithful. And I love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 